Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the works in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. We've got a special treat for you while you're eagerly awaiting us to get back to Samuel Johnson. A few weeks back, I attended and presented at the Intelligent Speech Conference here in New York. It was a really great time, and my intention was to record the presentation and then release that as an episode unto itself. Well, best intentions, mice and men, and all that, and uh, the recording didn't quite come out. But I still have the text of the lecture, and I figured I could re-record and put it out there. It's a brief analysis, maybe more summary than analysis, of Wallace Stevens' notes toward a supreme fiction. And if you want to know what I think about dense, somewhat long, modernist poems, well, here's your chance. We'll be moving back to Johnson shortly, and also be rolling out our side canons that we announced in previous shows, so stay tuned. One note before I get started. There was a listener who showed up to the lecture, and we started a conversation that got a bit interrupted because I had to leave the conference early and go take care of the kids. I got back late in the night and had a few more minutes to keep the ball rolling, but had to split early again. I still want to keep up that conversation as this listener asked some very intriguing questions. So if it was you, and I don't want to say your name on air, well, not without your permission, Drop me an email at claudemoinc at gmail.com. That's C-L-A-U-D-E-M-O-I-N-C at gmail.com. And just so I know it's you, let me know the work that you mentioned and recited at the bar. Okay, and now, notes on notes toward a supreme fiction. Today, I am here to speak about Wallace Stevens' Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction and why I find it a fascinating work. Essentially, Stevens does some really remarkable work thinking through how we think through things. He devises a poetic that admits to the fluid ways we make meaning in the world, and he bases this on a sort of eroticized reading of epistemological crisis. So today I'm going to give a brief overview of Stephen's place in the early 20th century poetic moment, go in depth into a couple of parts of the poem to explain the crisis Stephen sees, and then explain, if I can, why I find his resolution refreshing and why I like the poem. 
But first, a little bit of context for when Stevens was writing. Stevens' writing is most often associated with the term modernism, and I want to start by laying out some of the terms associated with modernism. I don't want to treat these terms as set in stone, nor do I want to treat modernism as a stable, specific movement or even moment. Though the early 20th century was 100 years ago, scholars and critics are still sifting the pieces, and the moment that was taken as a unified movement by the 1950s has proven to be much more malleable and much less stable. But for the sake of this presentation, we could do worse than to open with a set of terms associated with the literary artistic moment within which Stephen emerged. First, very broadly speaking, the writers of the time generally perceived a rapid, unprecedented change in nearly every aspect of life. These aspects included technological scientific shifts, political change, social change, economic change, and so on. Every single stabilizing structure looked as if it were, were undergoing massive and immediate disruption, giving the sense that the present moment is divorced from the past and lacks any coherent meaning, hence the ontological epistemological crisis associated with the time period. Now, these kinds of crises of meaning aren't new, but what marks the early 20th century is a bit different are the rapidity of the change and the facts of globalization which amplified the aforementioned changes as well as the speed of those changes. The high modernist literary response was to emphasize artworks that were aristocratic instead of demotic, complicated instead of easily comprehensible, ironic and distanced instead of engaged, apolitical, and they often viewed the work as ideally detached from the material circumstances of its composition. The end result was a work that claimed to stand outside of its time and place to occupy a space as an art object among other static art objects. The epitome of this is something like Pound's project in the Cantos to collect, as if in a museum, the most luminous bits of high Western culture and preserve them against the perceived oncoming destruction of the mob. The emphasis on eternity also accounts for the modernist obsession with Greek myth. Myth for the moderns is an embodiment of an eternal principle. Never mind that the Greeks use their myth much as modern filmmakers use comic books, stable story frameworks, whose constant contents are constantly reinterpretable. It's pretty apparent from the get-go that Stevens isn't in league with a project like this. There are aspects of Stevens' work, particularly his emphasis on abstraction, that create points of contact between the Eliotic, Poundian, high-modernist world. But Stevens diverges more than converges. Where the high modernists move to Europe to partake of the idealization of capital W Western culture, Stevens stayed in the Americas and drew his observations from his life there. Where the high modernists fetishized a disembodied poetics, Stevens recognized that works are responses to the particular concerns of a time and place. And where the high modernists saw in the destabilizations of their moment nothing but chaos and catastrophe, Stevens often emphasizes the cyclical nature of things, casting cultural despair and fragmentation as one moment in a larger order that the parameters of which escape us. In all this, Stevens seems closer in outlook to the poetry that comes later in the century, poetry which emphasizes playful embrace of ontological epistemological uncertainty. This is something that I really admire about Stevens' work. It's not that he dismisses the tumultuous times in which he lived, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II, the dawn of the Cold War, but that he doesn't capitulate to the despair of many of his peers, despair that sought totalizing solutions to the catastrophe of the 20th century. 
Eliot found relief in aristocratic politics and high church Anglicanism. Yeats in a system of essentialist esoteric archetypes. Pound and many others in fascism. Stevens resists all of these systems with an insistence that existence is made up of comings together and comings apart of meanings, orders, systems, worlds. If Stevens does rest in a totalizing system, it's the totalizing system of constant change, the system being one not of constant stability, but a system like a biological system, one defined by constant change. So Stevens, I find with a pretty admirable intellectual honesty, will admit many more possibilities into his world rather than cut them out for a totalized, idealized, perfect system that either doesn't exist or could only exist by inflicting violence on a perceived impure other. In order to keep things fluid, Stevens has to admit to imperfection, and that leads to the title of the work. Okay, in a letter to Henry Church, the sometimes bewildered dedicatee of the Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction, Stevens explains some of what he means by supreme fiction. One evening a week or so ago, a student at Trinity College came to the office and walked home with me. We talked about this book, Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction. I said that I thought we had reached a point at which we could no longer really believe in anything unless we recognized that it was a fiction. The student said that that was an impossibility, that there was no such thing as believing in something that we knew was not true. It's obvious, however, that we're doing this all the time. There are things with respect to which we willingly suspend disbelief. If there is instinctive in us a will to believe, or if there is a will to believe, whether or not it is instinctive, it seems to me that we can suspend disbelief with reference to a fiction as easily as we can suspend it with reference to anything else. There are fictions that are extensions of reality. There are plenty of people who believe in heaven as definitely as your New England ancestors and my Dutch ancestors believed in it. But heaven is an extension of reality. The paradox here is palpable. The things in which we must have faith must be things in which we can't have faith. And Stephen asserts we're doing this all the time. Perhaps calling to mind the way that we are often required on a daily basis to take some unverified or unverifiable fact or idea for granted, from news reports from abroad to faith in abstract political concepts that presumably provide a framework for social stability. The poet himself and his life as a lawyer, engaged in usable fictions, writing surety bonds, coverage for possible possibilities. But in his letter, Stevens doesn't stop the everyday. He quickly moves on to the topic of metaphysics, pronouncing the heaven of his and church's ancestors a fiction that is an extension of reality, suggesting a physical source for the metaphysical, though the metaphysical remains untrue, a fiction. The poet suggests that we have a sort of will to believe, and yet Stevens' doubt keeps him honest about the nature of such belief. Throughout the notes, Stevens keeps systems of belief in flux through a series of restless examinations of a set of motifs, the major ones being the tension between a general poetics and a poetics for a specific time and place and person, the circular workings of desire, physical, emotional, and artistic, if clear divisions can be made among such things, and the capability of the poem for high visionary moments with the resulting questioning of the reliability or sustainability of such moments. All of these motifs intertwine, all of them have relations to each other, and the fluctuation of one can affect the meditation of the others. At the end of the poem, we have a gesture toward recognition of fluctuation as a perpetual historical process, a never-ending twisting and turning, an endless configuring, deconfiguring, and reconfiguring that mirrors the motifs and the structures of the poem itself. 
the whole, to repeat, is encapsulated within a paradoxical constant inconstancy. The poem is in three sections. It must be abstract, it must change, and it must give pleasure. Abstraction is a major component of Stevens' writing, as it was for much modernist writing at a particular point, but Stevens' employment of abstraction is a bit different than some of his earlier peers. James Longenbach, in his work on Stevens' modern art in the early to mid-20th century, notes the ways that abstraction went from being an elitist gesture to a democratic one. Early modernists used abstraction to differentiate an insider group of educated elite readers, gallery goers, or patrons from an unsophisticated mass and its disposable mass culture. By the 40s and 50s, though, abstraction could be used as a much wider invitation to participate in the work as it opens the door for a plurality of different viewpoints to partake and fill in the particulars of the broad depiction. Abstraction becomes democratic because it can allow anyone's experience to fill in the blanks. That seems to be what Stevens has in mind as he begins the poem this way, Begin, Ephebe, by perceiving the idea of this invention, this invented world, the inconceivable idea of the sun. We, the reader, become the poetic Ephebe, Ephebe being the almost citizen of the Greek city-state, as we are the almost poet of the work, inventing with the author. Invention, though regularly associated with creation or making, has roots in the idea of discovery, suggesting that within the scope of the poem, creation and revelation are related activities, and the whole thing opens with a typical Stevensian move to urge us to become ignorant or willfully unknowing again, suggesting that the beginning of the creation involves stripping all preconceived notions away. And yet we are to strip all preconceived notions away again, suggesting that this whole thing is a cycle of building and stripping, building and stripping. Indeed, this is the way that the poem progresses. Stevens will try an image or idea, work with it, gauge it, find it limited or limiting, then move on. The first section of the poem works towards trying to articulate both the ultimate abstract subject and the ultimate artificer for the subject. It ends with a kind of deflation, but only Kind of. And this is from the 10th section of the first section, or the 10th poem of the first section. The major abstraction is the idea of man, and major man is its exponent, abler in the abstract than in a singular, more fecundous principle than particle, happy fecundity, floribundant force, in being more than an exception, part, though an heroic part, of the commonal. The major abstraction is the commonal, the inanimate, difficult visage. Who is it? What rabbi grown furious with human wish, what chieftain walking by himself, crying most miserable, most victorious, does not see these separate figures one by one, and yet see only one in his old coat, his slouching pantaloons beyond the town? Looking for what was, where it used to be. Cloudless the morning. It is he, the man in that old coat whose sagging pantaloons, it is of him, Ephebe, to make, to confect the final elegance, not to console nor sanctify, but plainly to propound. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Invention, though regularly associated with creation or making, has its roots in the idea of discovery, suggests the ultimate image is that of a homeless man, and the artistic act is redefined as an act of direct statement. The second section emphasizes the ways that both the world and our understanding of the world are in constant flux. It begins fittingly enough with a bored angel, bored even of sex and sexuality. Uh, the old seraph, parcel gilded among violets, inhaled the appointed odor, while the doves rose up like phantoms from chronologies. The Italian girls wore jonquils in their hair, and these the seraph saw had seen long since in the bandeau of the mothers would see again. What Stevens does here is something that he did more subtly at the end of the last section. He eroticizes not just the aesthetic drive, but he also the drive to find meaning. Creation, creativity, meaning, and desire are mixed, and part of the process of renewal is recreating desire. Much of the second section is taken up with images grown stale, such as statuary whose triumphant poses represent moments that are much more equivocal in their triumph. The key moment in the second section, at least for me, is section 8, which brings together the eroticized epistemological concern with the earlier concerns for breaking down stale systems of understanding in order to reach towards renewal. It's here that Nancy Annunzio, uh, a sort of angelic avatar of Annunciation, confronts Ozymandias and keeps repeating, I am the spouse divested of bright gold, the spouse beyond emerald or amethyst, beyond the burning body that I bear. I am the woman stripped more nakedly than nakedness, standing before an inflexible order, saying, I am the contemplated spouse. Um, <clears throat> she strips herself into nothingness until finally Ozymandias replies, then Ozymandias said the spouse, the bride is never naked. A fictive covering weaves always glistening from the heart and mind. What Stevens affects here is a metaphysical striptease. Desire in the notes, and more generally in most of Stevens' poems, as Helen Vindler analyzes in Words Chosen Out of Desire, is a crucial element at work in the heat of the scholar who writes the book, Hot for Another Accessible Bliss, that's a quote from the poem, deadened for the old seraph who witnesses again and again the scene of rebirth and spring, sniffing the appointed odor necessary for the confrontation between Nancy Annunzio and Ozymandias. Desire is the root of the aim of getting back to the first idea, stripping away all mental fullness to a bare sense of experience. Once experience is bare, it's set to be clothed. Imaginative creation and active poetry can't take place without the desire to produce something not there, and such a production, the poem seems to suggest, can't happen unless the sense of fullness or fullness itself has been diminished. Desire, though, for all of its energized, energizing potential, for all of its ability to cause us to seek to create, can be one more paradoxical struggle, one more repetitive cycle in a system of repetitive cycles. That's the problem in Stevens and can be the problem with him. 
If these are eternal repetitive cycles, then what's the point? The third section seems to offer an out by focusing more fully on the visionary capacity for invention that the whole thing started with, as well as emphasizing how such visionary invention or reinvention, as it's something that has happened before, or so the poem suggests, is a part of what gives us pleasure in the world. It sneaks back in with the image of the blue woman at the window in section two. It's not fantastic visionary crafting detached from the world that gives the woman a sense of pleasure. Rather, it's a re-experiencing by way of memory. Hence, her pleasure is an invented thing, part discovery, part craft. Sections five through eight of the third section or, or poems five through eight of the third section, depict the internal adventures of the canon aspirin, a figure whose name suggests doctrinaire religious thinking and the use of such as a pain reliever, though his name can also suggest visionary capacity, i.e. aspiring. The canon, after dinner with his sister and admiring her sensible ecstasy, falls into his own dream of being a sort of Miltonic Satan seraphic being expressing creation and control. This is what he says. He imposes order as he thinks of them, as the fox and snake do. It is a brave affair. Next he builds capitals and in their corridors, whiter than wax, sonorous, fame as it is, he establishes statues of reasonable men who surpass the most literate owl, the most erudite of elephants. But to impose is not to discover. To impose is not to discover. And this is a major part of Stephen's thinking. The act of creating meaning from the world must come from the world. Otherwise, it's a delusion. And attempts to contain and control an ever-moving thing are madness at best, at worst, totalitarian tyranny. The culmination of that move is literally masturbatory. Um, Section 8 involves Cinderella fulfilling herself beneath the room. The the fantasy becomes so detached from reality that it becomes self-enfolded. But the move in the ninth section is a proposition. Perhaps the man-hero is not the exceptional, exceptional monster, but he that of repetition is most master. It's not about being above and beyond the time and place. It's not about being supreme above all things. It's being able to master repetition. Um, master it not necessarily in terms of having power and authority over it, but being with it in a sense so that it doesn't master you. To find newness in the repetition. The poem ends by looking forward to the re-beginning of the process. Fat girl, terrestrial, my summer, my night, how is it I find you in difference, see you there in a moving contour, a change not quite completed? You are familiar, yet an aberration. Civil, madam, I am, but underneath a tree, this unprovoked sensation requires that I should name you flatly, waste no words, check your evasions, hold you to yourself." Even so, when I think of you as strong or tired, bent over work, anxious, content alone, you remain the more than natural figure. You become the soft-footed phantom, the irrational distortion, however fragrant, however dear. That's it. The more than rational distortion. The fiction that results from feeling. Yes. That. Then we'll get it straight one day at the Sorbonne. We shall return at twilight from the lecture, pleased that the irrational is rational, until, flecked by feeling in a gildered street, I call you by name, 
my green, my fluent mundo. You will have stopped moving. You will have stopped revolving, except in crystal. The intellect will do the job of satisfying the desire for some new sense of meaning to give gravity to the moment and hold everything together. And then the whole thing begins again when flicked by feeling. And the final articulation becomes both a stopping point and a starting point. Stopped revolving except in crystal. It's a simultaneous vision of the fulfilled and unfulfilled moment in time. Movement has stopped, while the light produces more movement, glitterings from the stilled thing, replicating the action of invention that serves as the engine for the whole process. Okay, that was the easy part. Now comes the hard part, articulating why I like this poem. It's not just that this poem is a quote-unquote difficult one in the modern sense of difficult poetry. It's not the poem that makes the task difficult. The difficulty comes from trying to find an expression for your own effective response that is particular enough to transmit the personal experience, but not so particular that it becomes solipsistic. First, what I admire in the poem is something that I admire in Stevens generally, a fascination for the cyclical without the work becoming overly bound to the specificities of any one cycle. In the contest we held to determine the topic of this talk, I included a chaos theory poetics of history as one of the topics. And while I don't think the notes absolutely adhere to the concept, it finds fuller figuration later in a writer like Frank Bedard. The kernel of the idea is there. It goes like this. The cycle will repeat necessarily, but it also will repeat with a difference, as every new repetition of the moment occurs at a new and different moment. Part of mastering repetition involves allowing for the difference within the repetition, a difference which may change the parameters of the pattern. Chaos theory uses the model of a weather system. The broad parameters of the system are predictable. But what happens within those parameters is fluid and up to chance and can shift the actual parameters. Returning at different points in my life to the notes or to any work opens up the work to reconsideration and new meaning. The notes anticipate this tendency more than other works I've encountered, and I really find that a fascinating trait. The second thing I really admire about Stevens in general, and the notes in particular, is the way that they're aware of and accept the lack of ontological, epistemological, or existential conclusion. This isn't something new. On the podcast, it was the running theme the whole time Daniel and I were reading Montaigne. But the articulation within the notes is refreshing for the way that such lack of resolution, the yearning after some stable way of understanding or knowing the world, is taken not as a tragic element of contemporary existence, but rather a creative part of being and thinking. There never will be a final knowledge or a final complete total meaning for the world, not even the recycling that Stevens lays out, as within that recycling, time has changed the meaning of the moment. And that leads me to the third thing I admire about this poem, and that's the explicit link between intellectually sufficient meaning and the erotic drive. Whatever can be said about Stephen's drive towards epistemological conclusion could be said about the drive towards the satisfaction of desire, and that, for me, is really the heart of this long poem and the heart of much of Stephen's work in general. The search for meaning, like the search for erotic satisfaction, is an open-ended, fluid, playful component in the work. It's not without its pains or pangs, but the pleasure for seeking satisfaction and finding the conclusion inconclusive strikes me as being at one with any other process of desire, and I'm grateful for Stevens for articulating this. 
Now, I won't go so far as to say the poem is perfect. There's a particular section that mars it a bit, and that's the actual conclusion that was used as back matter when the poem was first printed, but which generally gets tacked on as a kind of coda. Um, soldier, there is a war between the mind and sky, between thought and day and night. It is for that poet is, it, it is for that the poet is always in the sun, patches the moon together in his room to his Virgilian cadences up, down, up, down. It is a war that never ends, yet it depends on yours. The two are one. They are a plural, a right and left, a pair, two parallels that meet if only in the meeting of their shadows or that meet in a book in a barrack, a letter from melee. But your war ends, and after it you return with six meats and twelve wines, or else without, to walk another room. But sure and comrade, the soldier is poor without the poet's lines, his petty syllabi, the sounds that stick, inevitably modulating in the blood. And war for war, each has its gallant kind. How simply the fictive hero becomes the real, how gladly, with proper words, the soldier dies, if he must, or lives on the bread of faithful speech. Stevens is pitting the man of action against the man of thought, basically justifying the writing of a poem in the middle of wartime. It falls flat because of pat abstraction in face of the brutality of World War II, as well as the overly open-ended idea that the man of action is the man of action only because he has an animating idea inspired by something so profound it sends him to war. One might remind Stevens that Nazi fascism was a system of belief that plenty of soldiers took as the bread of faithful speech. And I want to close with an apt response to this moment in the poem by another poet whose work I also really admire, James Merrill. Now, this move was suggested to me when one of my grad school professors pulled this prank on me uh, when I was doing a presentation in his class on Stevens' Notes Toward a Supreme Fiction. And it was a prank that uh, was a little cruel at the time, but which I found, well, appropriate, because Merrill had a bone to pick. Uh, this is page from the Quran, Merrill's poetic response to the Beirut Marine Barracks bombing and to Stevens. Uh, Merrill traveled widely in the Middle East and was very familiar with Islamic culture and in three stanzas meditates on the ways words collected into a small book can motivate us in many directions. The poem meditates on three different uses of the text, uh, the text of the Quran, a holy text whose very essence is supposed to be divine. The first use is monetary. Uh, a page is being sold for millions of dollars, and something sacred is being turned to greed. The second is malevolent. The second stanza of the poem addresses the ways that this particular sacred text has been used as the justification for violence. Not the only sacred text to, to do so, but in the particular case that Merrill's writing about, it is. But the third stanza meditates on the other uses of the text. And I want to read a bit of that. How gladly, with proper words, said Wallace Stevens, the soldier dies or kills. God's very word then stung the heart to greed and rancor. Yet, not where the last glow touches one spare man inked in against his minaret. Letters so handled their life and hurt. 
leaving the scribe immune? The poem, like Stevens, is open-ended, and more than just the riff on Stevens' lines, I hear a riff on his idea of the major man and on his poem, Final Soliloquy of the Interior Paramour, in which the meditative poet declares God and the imagination as one from the viewpoint of a small enclosed space after the lighting of the first lamp of evening. The letters are words and they bring life, and there are words which can inspire violence, and there are words which can hurt. Is the writer immune to the use of his, her, or their text? Once the text is put out there, it becomes open to interpretation, and one form of openness may be closure. Epistemological desire can find conclusion where originally there was none. And yet, both poets, I think, have a hope, Stevens perhaps out of lack of considering this, that world-destructive violence need not be the end. Thank you. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.